If you've never heard me say this before, it bears repeating. Words matter. Even when they're on echo. The words that you use matter in communicating with people. I remember years ago, when we first moved to Oklahoma from the West Coast, and I was a mail carrier, having come from the West Coast, we never dealt with things like tornadoes. So one day, before clocking in, I was gathered there with a bunch of the rest of the carriers, and I just asked them, what do you do if a storm comes up when you're out on the route? And one gentleman, a born and bred Oklahoman, said to me, I looked at him and said, what? And he looked at me and repeated the same thing. So I looked at the guy standing around there and I'm like, am I being punked? Is he messing with me? And they all just shook their heads in agreement with what he said. So I looked at this one guy that I kind of had gotten friends with and I said, what did he say? To which the, that second man, very condescendingly, started answering me like I was a special needs person. And I guess being from the West Coast, I was. He said, you find yourself a freighty hole. Ah, now I get it, was my reply. But then I looked at him and I said, what's a freighty hole? And at that moment, he knew that I was special needs. And so very slowly and very loudly, he said, a storm shelter. Ah, words matter. In this second part of a three-part prayer, to his father, the son begins praying for these men that sat around him, men that he and his father had chosen to be his disciples and caretakers of the church that he would birth in just a few hours from now. And the words that he uses in this prayer matter. They're meaningful impactful, defining, and we need to pay attention to the words that he uses to understand the reality of this God that has saved us and the one that we call God. And so I'm going to ask you to do once again that thing that is so uncomfortable for most of us. I'm going to ask you to underline in your Bible. And as a side note, this is one reason that I carry a printed version of the Bible with me. Why I bring a printed version with me. And why I study from a printed version. I have electronic versions on all my devices, but those are my backups in case I find myself without a Bible. But having said that, underlining, making notes, stars, asterisks, these will help jog your memory the next time you come to this verse. As an aside, when we came to Psalm 32 this morning, I have it circled, and I've written mom next to that. And I wrote mom next to that because seven years ago, my mom almost died. And when we came, and I came here and met with her, and she said, pray for me. And I said, mom, you have to pray yourself. Grab your Bible. Turn to Psalm 32 and cry out to God. And he'll meet you. And he did. 
and I've got it circled in my Bible, and I've got mom written next to it, because I want to remember that. Making notes in your Bible will jog your memory. It'll bring back to memory the context of this message today and the importance of the things that you have underlined here or the notes that you've taken. So grab your Bible and underline the following words in these verses. Four words. Name, world, word, and truth. Again, those four words. Name, world, word, and truth. Now, chapter 17 is all one prayer, prayed out loud in front of the disciples by Jesus. And at the heart of this prayer, there is one underlying goal, glory, glory for the Father and glory for the Son. And verses 1 through 5 were directed to the Father, just as this section of the prayer is. But the first part, verses 1 through 5, was focused on Jesus' desire to bring glory to the Father, and his desire to be glorified as well. Verses 16 through 19, our verses today, are specifically focused on these men, those ones sitting in that upper room. And then, because they are part of what is being birthed, by extension, part of this prayer is also for all saints. But before we dig into this section, Let's not forget the one thing that Jesus desired to give these men. The same thing that he gives to all that are given him. Life. True life. And the life that Jesus has given those that are his, that were given him by the Father, that he has purchased with his blood, that he has sent his spirit to regenerate, to teach and reveal his divine will to, that this life is understood it's rooted in, it's lived out in knowing the Father and knowing the Son. It's not in stuff. It's not in happiness, a great job, a great golf game, a wonderful life, even a wonderful family. These are not the life that God has given us. They are merely parts of his common grace that he has given all people. The life that he has purchased for us with his blood is found in knowing him. Which is why underlining these words is so important. Because Jesus, in this prayer, will define the how of getting to know the one that is life and life more abundantly. And this begins in verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me, who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. In this verse, you should have underlined three words, name, world, and word. So let's begin with the, to deal with the first one first. What does he mean when he says that he has revealed or manifested his name to them? 
He meant what John 1.18 said. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus makes God known to mankind since he, he is the exact image of the Father, the same in substance and equal in power. His taking on flesh and tabernacling with us revealed the essence and character of God, which is what he means when he says that I have revealed or manifested your name to them. His name is who he is. And this is why the second commandment is given to us, because it's built on the first commandment, that we should have no other gods. And taking the name in vain, the name of God in vain, doesn't just mean using vulgar language or using it as an explicitive. Taking his name in vain also means calling yourself a Christian and not knowing him. Calling yourself a Christian and then besmirching his character, his name, through wanton, blatant sin. Looking like the world, acting like the world, talking like the world. Jesus making the Father known is the meaning behind all eight of those I am statements that he made throughout the book of John. He is making the Father known. He is making the Father relatable. He is making the Father personal. And he didn't stop doing that on the day that he died and rose from the grave. He continued to manifest the Father to us through the giving of his Spirit to his saints, and specifically to those that he would use to pen the Holy Scriptures, which are give us the word that his Spirit, the Spirit of truth, then magnifies to us. And that's another word that we should think about. Magnify. The psalmist in Psalm 34, 3 explained, O magnify Yahweh with me, and let us exalt his name together. To magnify something means to look really close at it, like when you look through a magnifying lens, like at cells or molecules. You really start drilling down to get a deep look of what it, what it is that you could only see superficially without that magnifying lens. But magnify also means to blow up, to enlarge, to make huge. And that is a result of the drilling down, the looking deep. When you do that, it's then that you magnify the Lord, that you make much of him, because he becomes huge in your world. And by the way, did you notice what it was that the psalmist explained that we should magnify, that we should exalt? His name. Once again, it's his name who is who he is. His name is his essence. It's his character. It's him. And in him is found life, true life, eternal life, other life. The second word that you should have underlined is world. That word is a tricky one, or seems to be. It's used in John 3.16, and in that verse, it's used to prove that God has loved the same love in equal measure for all humans, because there we're told, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But the only problem with holding that, or at least for those that desire to use that word in that context, 
If you use world in this context to mean all people for all time, you have to deal with verse 9 from our text today, as well as verses 13 and 14, and verses 15 and 16. The question of what is meant in John 3:16, of what he meant there in the use of that word world, can be seen from our text today, even from verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Who did Jesus manifest his name to? The people that, he was, that was given to him out of the world. The reason I wanted you to underline the word world is to reveal to you that this word does not have a static meaning in the book of John. It, you cannot hold that it means all people for all time and be consistent with the word of God. In fact, it's used ten different, in ten different meanings within the book of John, not just one. A point I'm going to make to you in verse 9. And what was it that these men, that Jesus manifested, revealed the name of God to, who were given him out of the world? What was it that they kept? Saints, this is important. This is important in your sanctification, in your life with Christ, in your daily life. How many of you know that your life is out of control? How many of us feel like we just wish we had more time? Know that we're just barely hanging on by a thread because we're stretched so thin. And how many of us that are feeling this way have made the word, the ministry of the word in our lives of supreme importance? This is the reality of Christianity. In and of yourself, you can't do it. As an example of this, you know that you are required to give to this body. But you look at your finances and you determine that you can't do that. You can't make that a reality. And for this reason, you can never get out of debt. You can never get out of the hole. You can never get ahead. But when you take God at his word and obey him, even though it makes no sense, and even though it seems in obedience something is not going to get paid or we're not going to eat this month, when you obey and give, it's then that miraculously you can give. And at the end of the month, you even have extra money. The reality is that our lives are out of control because we do not place the ministry of the word at the center of them. I can't do that, you say. I have no time as it is. How am I supposed to find the time to sit down in the morning and read the word of God? How am I supposed to find the time in the evening to study, to show myself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed? How am I supposed to find the time to read the word with my family? with my spouse, I don't even have the time to do the basics now. And for this reason, you never will have time to do the basics. Your life will always be out of control. And your life, the life that God has given you in him, in knowing him, will always be a mere shadow, a shell of the reality that is supposed to be your life. And this truth is reiterated in verses 7 and 8. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. 
For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. They know. How do they know? The word. The word that was given to the Son by the Father. The word that the Son will give the Spirit of truth to magnify in and to us. However, specifically for these men, they knew that everything the Father has given the Son was from him because of their life with Christ. Again, these men were special. They alone in redemptive history are the apostles. There are no more apostles, no matter what the billboards out there say. These were the apostles, the ones that Jesus used to birth his church, give his word to the church. It was these men that he gave the ability to perform miracles as proof that they were of him, sent by him. And these men know through the word. And the thing that they know is truth. Again, this concept of truth is one that has fallen on hard times in our day. We're told that there are no absolute truths, that there are only your truths and my truths. And what works for you is your truth, and what works for me is my truth. And we, the redeemed, scoff at this nonsense because we know that there are absolute truths in this world, that we will all die no matter what you think, that we are all bound by the laws of nature, gravity, thermodynamics, the laws of non-contradiction, and that the word is truth, that God is truth. And in verse 9, Jesus clarifies, separates, and defines. He, no, he makes another one of those true statements. In one sense, verses 6 through 8 are part of the first section of this prayer that Jesus prayed. The prayer to the Father concerning bringing glory to him and having the Father glorify the Son. And the reason for this is that they do concern the Son and the finished work that he will accomplish in just a few hours. But at the same time, in another way, these verses do concern the disciples since they are speaking of them and the effects of this truth of Jesus, the word that became flesh and tabernacled with them, will have on these men. But beginning in verse 9, he makes it crystal clear who it is that the love of God was manifested through the Son is for. He clarifies the world of John 3.16, and he clarifies the intended meaning to that. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Who is them? Who is it that Jesus is praying for? You understand, this is a specific group, because this is important. This is one of those true statements that we need to understand and live by. He is actually praying for somebody, specific people. Not everybody, hopefully, but he's praying specifically for somebody. Who is that group? All people for all time, as told to us in John 3.16. If that's so, then why does he say that he's not praying for the world? And he even goes on to further clarify who it is that he means by saying that they are special because they were given him by the Father. And the reference of the, to the election of God isn't unusual. This is not an isolated incident in the book of John. 
he made this truth claim many times, such as John 6.44, when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or as told to us in John chapter 12, verses 39 and 40, he says, Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus is crystal clear. He is not meaning those that have not been given him by the Father here in this prayer. He's not even meaning you and me, or Luther, or Calvin, or Spurgeon. This section of this prayer is for a very specific group of men. Because these men were specifically chosen to manifest God to the elect of God after the Son of God had ascended to heaven and sent the Spirit of God to indwell and empower them. And once again, we see the specificity in which any have access to the Father. Jesus is the only way. He is the Fort Knox of the Father. He is the unbreakable security code that allows access to the Father. Outside of him, you will never, can never know the Father which means that you cannot know real life, life everlasting. And in verse 10, we're once again reminded of the unique relationship between the Father and Son. He says in verse 10, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. We need to understand this, that when Jesus left the earth and went to heaven, His disciples didn't stop being his disciples and become disciples of the Father. They lost nothing in Jesus' going, but in fact, they gained everything. Jesus desired the disciples to understand that as good as their relationship with him had been to this point, it was going to get much better when they gained direct access to the one that they were told loved them that gave them to the Son, who will send the Spirit of truth into them to live and guide them. And in verse 10, Jesus did something that he's done before. He speaks of the future as it's the present. In verse 4, he said to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And here he says, he is glorified in them. Speaking of the disciples, And in both of these instances, he's not making a prediction. This isn't wishful thinking. He is speaking truth. There was zero chance the Father would not submit the Son to the full vengeance and wrath for the sin of the people that he had given to the Son. And there was zero chance that the Father would not raise him from the dead. And there was zero chance that the Son would chicken out and try to make a deal to purchase those that were given him. And there was zero chance that the disciples would not glorify the Son. The simply amazing thing is how he is glorified in them, though. He is glorified in them through their partnership in the ministry of reconciliation, through the preaching of the gospel and the life of the church. In essence, what Jesus is saying here is sobering. He is saying that the honor and reputation of Jesus is displayed in the life of the church. Not this building or any building, but us. How we act, how we love, how we think toward each other. 
our lives, how we live as Christians, especially within our covenant body, is a direct reflection on Jesus. And this is one more reason why we must make the ministry of the word an essential part of our life. Only in it, through it, can we find how we are to act, how we are to love, how we are to teach, how we are to live in this new life that we have been given. We can't bring our old life into this covenant and think that we will glorify God in doing so. Because Jesus is God. He knew, though, with absolute certainty the outcome of these lives' men. Think about what is going to happen. And he said that he was glorified in them. He knew of their failure and weaknesses, but he also knew that because of his spirit indwelling these men, where they are weak, he is strong, and that his power is perfected in weakness, 2 Corinthians 10, 9. And then in verse 11, he once again speaks of the not yet as the already. He says in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Okay, Jesus wasn't confused about where he was. And he wasn't telling us and them that he had already gone to the Father, that he had left merely a shell here to deal with the effects of the betrayal, abuse, and murder, and then the wrath. He is revealing to the disciples an aspect of his relationship with the Father that he could never have known otherwise, the already and the not yet of it that he was from heaven, that he had been sent from heaven, and that he had already returned to heaven, that the glory the Father bestows upon the Son was his from eternity past, and that our salvation here is for our good and for his glory. Think about this, guys. God could have deemed it prudent and good to treat all his children like he did Enoch. Enoch is a person who we're told about in Genesis 5.24, which says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. God could have deemed this to be the experience of all for those that are of the elect, all those that come to know him as Savior and Lord. He could redeem us, regenerate us, and poof, we're gone. I would think that that would be a powerful witness for the Lord. How do you know if someone's a true Christian? They disappear. How do you know that God is real? He takes those that are his. But as nice and pleasant as that would be for us, this is not the will of God in our life. Jesus will tell these men in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. God's will in our life is the sanctification of our souls, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. His will is that we should do good, 1 Peter 2.15. His salvation is our entrance into his kingdom. And it's now that we are given the tools, which is the word of God and the spirit of God living inside of us, illuminating us to know God, to develop the relationship with him that will last for all eternity. And this is why he gives us work to do. 
why he disciplines us, why life here is not a bowl full of cherries, because this world is not our home. And in verse 11, we find two of those words that we should have been underlining, world and name. But before we get there and deal with them, there's something very unusual that it said in verse 11. Did you catch it? Jesus called his father, Holy Father. This is the only instance in the entire New Testament that the father is called holy. You think that's strange? Jesus is called holy only once in the the New Testament as well. And that's found in John 6, verse 69, in the profession of Peter, the confession of Peter, that he is God. The Spirit of God is called holy only three times. And they're all found in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 33, chapter 14, verse 26, and chapter 20, verse 22. What are we to make of this? What was the point in Jesus now calling his Father, Holy Father? The reason that Jesus called the Father, Holy Father, here has everything to do with the request that he has made to him. He is praying that the Father keep these men who will remain in the world and keep them in his name. And here's the second of those two words that we underline. World is the first, and as we can glean from this context, this is not the world that the Father so loved that he gave his only son for. This world is a world that hates him, that will hate these men because of him. Which brings us to that word, name. We've heard many times throughout this gospel the importance of the name of God, that his name is not just a handle that we hang on him in order that we know who we're talking about. His name is his nature. It's his essence. And it is in his name that Jesus is asking that the Holy Father, where holy would speak to the awesome transcendence of God, alongside of Father, which speaks to the intimate relationship that these men are given access to by the Son. It's in this name, the same name that the Son says here was given him, that he requests the Father preserve, empower, and protect these men. He desired these men to have supreme confidence in the one that he was speaking to. And what is being implied here is subtle but important. Jesus isn't asking his father, his holy father, to do these things. He is asking that he be these things. That he be their power. That he be their protector. That he be their preservation. He is letting these men know that the holy father, who is life, will be these things for them. This is a great solace. In this, reservation, in this revelation. Because we should never, because of this revelation, we should never worry if this is the will of God for us or not. We should never worry when things are hard, wondering if God will come through for us or not. God is our protector, not send a protector. He is our protector. He is is our provider. He's not going to send a provider. He is our provider. 
And he is our preservation. He doesn't send someone to preserve us. He is that for us. We find ourselves in him. Just like Jesus did. Which is why he ended this thought with, that they may be one, even as we are one. Was there ever a time that Jesus was left alone by his father? That the father failed to have his eyes on his son? That the father ever was not pleased with the son? Never. And this is the confidence that Jesus had of the father. And this is the same confidence that we are supposed to have in him. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. John 15, 9. And because of this love, because he has gone to the Father, made a way to the Father, because the Father loves us, because he no longer sees our sin because of the Son, he now sees us. He now sees us as holy and righteous. Because of these truths, we need not wonder if he's going to hold us fast or not. And at the same time, in the same manner, because of these truths, we should live as obedient children, not conform to the passions of our former ignorance, meaning that what we used to love prior to salvation, those things that do not glorify the Father, that openly mock him, we should no longer do. But what are we to do? How do we be holy in all of our conduct? The answer to that question is found in verse 14. There we should have underlined two words, word and world. And no, it's not the world that we're supposed to be attentive to or drawn to. It's the word. The word and the world are directly opposed to each other. This isn't to say that the creation that God made is evil, because it's not. What is being spoken of here is the fallen, evil, God-hating world system that the people of the Lord, the world live within, that is completely opposed to the word. And this is why we're told in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and acceptable, and perfect. And there Paul, directly before saying that, admonishes us in this. He said, therefore, I urge you, brothers, on account of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And this isn't a new concept. It's as old as the Bible itself. Deuteronomy 12, 28 tells us, be careful to obey all the words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever. And when you do what is good and right in the sight of Yahweh your God. And this truth never ceases as long as we are in this realm. Revelation 1, 3, blessed is he who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The primary way that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice is through the ministry of the word. We can't act outside of it and do the works of God. 
the works that he's prepared before us beforehand. We do the works through the word, through hiding the word in our hearts, through allowing the washing of the water of the word to sanctify our minds. And then as we act, our actions will be directed by the word and will be opposed to our old nature, be opposed to the world. And this is where so many of us are so confused and why so many of us doubt. Because we dismiss the word as a central aspect of our new life in Christ. And then we wonder at why we doubt if we're saved. Or why we lack power over our old sin nature. Why we continue to be that dog that returns to its vomit. That's not the life that we've been given. And this is not the love of the Father for us. Hear the reality of the life that we've been given by God. 1 John 2.2 God gave us his Son as our propitiation for our sins. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen to this. This is God speaking about you. For his sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become, that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all, Hebrews 10.10. And Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. We have, not we will, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us, and he has seated us with him. Now he has seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that any can, anyone may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. This is the reality of our life with Christ, our life in Christ, our life because of Christ. And we are meant to rest in this reality, this truth. We are supposed to live in this new life. And how do we know this life, this truth? Wouldn't it have been cruel to give us this new life and not allow us to know what that life is, how to live it? But the one who is, a, the, no, to, to actually know the one who is the lover of your soul, to know what he's like. But God being rich and merciful didn't leave us like this. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. 
And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 1 through 5. Saints, we live in an amazing country. Doesn't seem like it at times, but we do. And we live in an amazing time in world history. We, for the first time in all of human history, have nonstop access to the physical word of God. It's online for all of us to be able to access from anywhere in the globe. It's in the airwaves, and we can have it read to us at any time, day or night. It's in print, in our own language. In so many varied translations that, the, that there are people who are angry at Grace Church because they've come out with the Legacy Standard Bible. And they're angry about this because they say that there's already too many translations available for the English speakers. We each have our own copy of the Word. Most of us have multiple copies of it. And yet, this generation, the one that we are, we are the least theologically minded, least biblical generation ever. We are those spoiled children that have taken for granted the things that our forefathers strove for and died to bring to us. Saints, we have to change our mind. We have to change our attitude concerning the word. We must make it a priority in our life. We have to turn off the talking heads or music in your car. Have the word read to you instead. Start, you need, we need to take time every day to start your day in the word. It will make an impact in your life. I promise you, don't scoff at me about this. Because if I were to tell you that eating daily would be beneficial for you and your overall well-being, that you would have more drive, more energy, greater concentration throughout your day if you just eat once a day, would you scoff at me if I told you that? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. The supremacy of the word was paramount. Listen to me. The supremacy of the word was paramount in the life of Christ. And we get a glimpse of that from verse 12 of our text today. There, he continues to pray for the disciples and says this to the Father. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. All that Jesus did was in obedience to the Father. We know that. But it was also in obedience to the word. Saints, there's no great mystery as to how we are to be holy. When God is spoken of as being holy, morally upright is not the primary meaning. It does include that meaning, but it's not primary. When we are encouraged to be holy, for he is holy, and has called us to be holy, as in 1 Peter 1.15, which says, but just as he called you, as he who called you is holy, you are also to be holy in all that you do. Is the Lord meaning by this in that statement that we are just to be morally upright? We are to be morally upright, 
to love God and hate sin. But how do we do that? We need to be holy. We need to be separate, set apart, different than the rest. Well, how does that happen? What sets us apart? What governs our life that is different than the world, other than the world? We're to be in the Word and allow the Word to master us. The world and its system has rejected the Word of God and as authoritative over their lives. And you see the result of this all around us. And even what is called the church, the word is not the rule, the plumb line. It's not held as authoritative. To be holy, we must be in the word and submit to the word and how we act toward each other, how we love each other, how we submit to each other, but most, and most importantly, how we submit to the word. And Jesus demonstrates that to us here in this verse. In the first part of this sentence, he is speaking about the disciples and his care and protection for them, that none of them were lost, but he kept on, I'm sorry, but they've been kept in his name, in the name of the Father. But then he turns his attention to a very troubling reality of the one that is not named here, the one that's just called the son of destruction. It's not that Jesus failed to keep this one, that he was unable to keep this one, or that he was willing to keep this one, but that one chose otherwise. By not naming him and using the term son of destruction, Jesus is aligning Judas with the master that still owned him. The same one that Paul talks about and used the same name for in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, when he says, Let no one deceive you for in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is, lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And earlier, Jesus said back in chapter 13, before sending Judas away, he said, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know who you've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my, my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's verse 18 of chapter 13. And the scripture that he's referring to is Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Saints, I hope you've been paying attention, thinking, thinking about these verses. Because what is told to us in, verse 40, in Psalm 41, 9, that is retold to us in John 13, 8, should cause us to wonder. It should cause us to actually think. It should cause us to be amazed at the love of God and Jesus the Christ, who knew that Judas was not of him. He knew that he would betray him. And yet, out of love and obedience to the word, to the word, he acted. He submitted to the word as authoritative over him, and he acted. He loved this man. He could have just allowed him access. He could have just gone through the motions, but he loved the Father, and he desired to bring glory to him, so he obeyed the word and acted. He chose to make the son of destruction a close friend. He chose to trust him. He chose to open his heart to the son of destruction, knowing full well that he would be betrayed by him. 
And he did this in obedience to and in knowledge of Scripture, the Word. Which brings us to the closing verses of this part of this prayer. And in it we find the desire of Christ for these men. And even the means to achieve that desire. Verses 13 and 14. He says, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in this world. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Here's the desire for Christ for them. His joy. And now he's going to explain how they are to obtain that joy. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. His desire is for them to know his joy, the joy that he possessed because he loved his father and did all that the father showed him. This was the desire of Christ, as told to us in verse 13. And in verse 14, he gives us the means of knowing that joy that he says is to be fulfilled in them. His word. The importance of the word in the life of the believer is once again highlighted, illuminated. This is how we are to have his joy. This is how we are to know that life, to know that life that the Father has given to us. His word. Saints, let's be honest with ourselves. Is it any wonder that our lives in Christ are as anemic as they are? Is it any wonder that the church is in such bad shape? We have so taken advantage of the primary means of grace given to us by God that we think nothing of thinking nothing about not reading the Bible, not getting to know the Father that is life, not heeding the thing that Jesus said is the means that he will know, that we will know his joy. If we open the Bible at all, it's for a few minutes each day, And we think that we've done good, that we are good. But let's be honest with each other. How solid would your relationship with your spouse be if you treated them the same way that you treat the Lord? You spend a few minutes a day with the Lord, a few minutes. And then you can't see why it's such a big deal that you listen to the thing that God abhors. What, that you can watch the things that are an abomination to God. That you can waste your time, waste your energy, waste the talents that God has given you on things that have no eternal importance. Saints, let us begin to challenge each other to spend more time with the Lord. Not in quiet time, meditating on your navel, but in the word. Let's challenge each other to begin memorizing the word, chewing on the word, devoting more time to the ministry of the word and submitting to it. We haven't done that because we haven't been taught to do that. We have not been taught of the supreme importance of the church in our lives. So we're casual concerning the church membership and attendance. We have not been taught to be holy, so we gossip instead of confronting sin. We don't think that it's our job to deal with the sinful words or actions of those that are called our brothers, even though the word clearly tells us otherwise. And in verses 13 and 14, there are, supposed to be, there are two words that you should have underlined. World, four times, and word once. 
The emphasis and importance of those of these words in these verses is not in the thing that is most spoken of here, the world. The emphasis and importance is centered on the word that is underlined only once, word. World is the backdrop that is used to highlight the word. The world is a thing that is to be seen as opposite of the word. If there's anything good in the word, the things of the world are seen to be opposite of that. The world gossips. The world uses psychological meaning, means in talking to people, never desiring to hurt their feelings, always affirming them and their rights instead of telling them to submit to the word. We have been deceived into thinking that we are all good because we come here for a couple hours a week and we might spend 10 minutes a day in the word. We have been told that this is life, the new life that is different than our old life and the life that those that don't have this life, that same life that we had before we were given this marvelous life, and as further proof of how deceived we've been, if you go into any Christian's home, more often than not, their homes are just like those that don't have life. How can this be? Because we've been lied to. We've been deceived into thinking that the life that we have been given is an add-on to the life that we had. Take, for instance, the idol that may be in your home. You know which one I'm talking about? You can spot this idol by the place of importance that is given in your home. Where are all the chairs in the largest room in your house? What are they facing? Each other? So that when you have people over, you can talk to them? We are expected... The word of God tells us we are expected to learn to live in this world and still not be of this world. As evidence of verses 15 through 19, our lives are supposed to be markedly different in comparison to those that don't have life. Jesus said, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but it, you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. We've seen in this section of scripture how the word and the world are opposed to each other. How the world is anti the word. And how important the word is supposed to be in our life with Christ. This truth, the importance of the word in our life, is once again made apparent by the thing that Jesus prays to the Father to sanctify us with. The word, which is truth. We need to get this. Because we have all, every one of us, come from places where the ministry of the word was not paramount in the life of the church, where the ministry of the word was not the sole means of knowing God, where the glorification of the Lord was not directly related to the word. And since this is truth, we have to acknowledge 
that how we think, how we act, what we are used to, these things have to be off as well. We must allow the word to master us, to allow the word to minister to us. We must realize that we must question all that we know of what it is to be a Christian because of what we are taught and, what we are, and where we came from. And here in this closing section of this part of the prayer to his Holy Father, the part that is directly for the disciples, we and they are shown the importance of the work that they are being commissioned for. In verse 19, Jesus says, Just as you have sent me, I send them. He is telling them that their commission isn't just kind of like his, but their commission, their sending, is the same as his. And for this reason, he consecrated himself. And that word there, consecrate or sanctify, means to set apart, to be holy, to separate from the things profane and dedicate to God. What he is doing here is leading by example once again. He is showing them the benefits, the power, the ability to do the impossible because that's what they're going to be asked and told to do. And it's all possible because of the Holy Father who will consecrate, I'm sorry, he will consecrate himself on the cross. And that is where ultimate victory is found. The world is opposed to the word. Your old life is opposed to your new life. The world tells you to live in the now, to live your best life now. The word tells us to live for eternity, to store up treasure in heaven. Our old life tells us to live for ourselves. Our new life tells us to come and die in service to the king. And in verses 15 through 19 are specifically prayed for these men sitting in that upper room on that last night with Jesus. It's a specific prayer for them in that they are specifically being anointed for a specific ministry. But at the same time, this prayer is also meant for you and for me because it is the will and desire of Jesus for us as well. We each have been purchased at a great price. If you were the only saint ever to be a saint, Christ would not have changed a single thing in the way that he lived and died. We've each been purchased at a great price for a specific reason. We have each been commissioned for a specific ministry that no one else can fulfill. And for this reason, this is verses 15 through 19 are for us as well. I don't ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. This is his prayer for us. Just as they are not of the world, this is his prayer for us. Just as they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. And this isn't a prayer like those that pray that don't know the Lord, that don't pray in the name of Jesus. Those that hope, ask, send up good thoughts. 
Jesus knew. He knew that this was a done deal because he was asking in his name, in his nature, and he was confident in the love, confident in the holiness and power of his Father. Saints, we are not of this world. This world and the rulers of this world have no control of us any longer. We are set apart. You are a cut above. And this is not a hope. This is not a prayer. This is reality. And we are supposed to live in this confidence of this reality. Not because of our efforts or our strength, but through the power that purchased us and the word that rules us. Listen to John, the Apostle John, as he spoke to the church later in his life. After he had lived years in the ministry of reconciliation that he had been given. After all the pain, heartache, and torture. Listen to the confidence that we are supposed to have because of the Son asking the Father and giving us his word. 1 John 5, 18-20 We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. This is our reality. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lives in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is truth. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus the Christ. He is the true God. And this is eternal life. Saints, this is the life that we have been given. This is the reality of us. And I hope that you, like me, can see how different my life is versus the reality of what God tells me I am. That you can see how much you, like I, have not placed the importance of the word in my, in my life. I could, I could spout words of secular songs to you all day long. I could quote movie scripts to you. But I can barely quote scripture to you. And we wonder why our lives are the way that we are. Saints, we have been given life. Let's endeavor to know that life. And we can only know it by making the word central in our life and allowing it to rule over our emotions, rule over everything that we are. It's then that we'll come to know the Father and the Son. And then we will have confidence and we will know.
Let's pray.